Good morning. This week I have some sad news to report. On uh, Thursday morning, Beverly Atkins passed away peacefully. Uh, And uh, it's Russell and Lori's mom, as you know. And it reminds us of why we do what we do. 23 years ago, this New Year's Eve, my dad died. And after my father's death, it, 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 as I was working through that, it, it made me realize if, if we would do our job and present the truth about God to the world, then the final message would lighten the world and the Lord would return. And God is waiting for people to, to, to actually tell the truth about him so that people have a choice. If you look around the world today, most people have a choice between no God or a God who will kill you if you don't love him. That's your choice. And in that, if that's your choice, it's better to choose no God. We haven't actually presented a viable alternative, the truth about who God is, that he would never do that. And we have a condition that needs healing. He's working to heal and restore us to perfection if we would let him. So there will be um, some uh, further announcements about arrangements at a later date after the holidays. So let's go ahead and uh, begin class with, with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for the fact that you have overcome death in the grave. And, and you, are, you are patient, not wanting anyone to be lost, and you're waiting for for a message about you to, to go to the world, to give people an option to, to break out of this, this world of fear and self-centeredness. We ask that you will be with Lori and Russell during this time of grieving to comfort them and the rest of the family, and I pray that you will uh, be with our class as we study today, that we will come to know you more effectively and, uh, and be able to present this message more effectively. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of weeks back, I made a reference online to a dialogue I had with some writers of Compass Magazine, online uh, magazine, and I mentioned that it was affiliated with Andrews University. I received an email uh, from a listener suggesting that it may not be an official relationship. Uh, it's, uh, I, in other words, it's not owned and operated by Andrews University, but instead appears to be a not-for-profit in an informal relationship, independent magazine, uh, edited and written uh, by uh, students of Andrews University. So I, I, that's, that, people felt it was important I made that distinction. And so if you know any further clarification of that exact relationship, that, that would be helpful. But it doesn't appear to be an official um, magazine of the university. So today's lesson, we're doing uh, lesson number 13 in the book of Job. And the title is The Character of Job. Last week, uh, we had a question that came up on Isaiah 53.10, which I did not answer. And there was some interest that I answered that question. So um, I will go ahead and answer that question about what do I understand Isaiah 53.10 to be. Isaiah 53.10 reads, and I'll read 10 and 11. Um, and it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This is the NIV version, and you can see the translators have a certain lens through which they have interpreted and translated this verse, a legitimate option and possibility, but not the only option and possibility. And it has God in the causal role of inflicting suffering because they have a certain view of God's law and a certain view of God's sovereignty that they are interpreting through, and thus they interpret it this way. It's an artifact, however, of the translators. It's not actually deterministic that way in the Hebrew. Here's the good news translation. The Lord says, it was my will that he should suffer. His death was a sacrifice to bring forgiveness 
And so he will see his descendants, and he will live a long life, and through him my purpose will succeed. After a life of suffering, he will again have joy. He will know that he did not suffer in vain. My My devoted servant, with whom I am pleased, will bear the punishment of many, and for his sake I will forgive them. And that was the uh, good news, and there's other translations that, that give this. The SD Bible commentary on this passage has the following. The Lord was not delighted that his servant, Messiah, should suffer, but rather in view of the eternal welfare of man and the security of the universe, it was best for him to suffer. It pleased the Lord in the sense that it was the Lord's will. Only thus could the plan of salvation succeed. The suffering of Christ were part of an eternal plan. This is correct. The Bible commentary is right. So how one understands a passage like this really goes back to the law lens. Do you see it? A system of rules like human beings make that then require infliction and punishment. Or do you see it as protocols upon which reality function, deviations from which are damaging to those who deviate and God is working to heal and restore? So it would be like a parent whose child was dying of leukemia and had another child who was a bone marrow match they might say they were pleased that their child, their healthy child, suffered by donating bone marrow to save their sibling. Because in so doing, it would result in the salvation of the. But in no way were they happy that their healthy child had to suffer. They were happy with the consequences and outcomes that the suffering would result in because it was the only means whereby to save. And it wasn't an infliction put upon them by the parent. It was what the situation required. And that's how we should understand the passage in Isaiah. God was happy or pleased that Christ went through this process because it was the means whereby God could achieve his goal of fixing what was broken in humanity and and saving humanity. Memory text for this week, James 2.22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? There's been a long-standing debate in Christianity about this text. The traditional penal substitutionary view is that we are saved totally by faith, i.e. accepting the legal payment of Jesus without any work from us, and that works are only an evidence of the fact that we are saved but have no role whatsoever in our salvation. There is, In other words, there's no work that we can do that isn't contaminated with sin. Thus, it would be useless to offer our works to God as having any merit for our salvation. Only by accepting the perfect sinless blood of Jesus can we have our sin debt paid. If we try to offer God our works, we only offer him contaminated offerings that he will not accept. This is the classic view. Have you all heard something along these lines? Let's jump to, with that in mind, let's jump to Friday's lesson. See, we're already in Friday's lesson, guys. <laughs> and we're going to read this uh, first paragraph. It says, The Protestant Reformation reclaimed the great truth of salvation by faith alone. This truth was first intimated in the, in the word back in Eden itself, and then given fuller expression in the life of Abraham before being successfully revealed in Scripture up through Paul. Yet truth... Yet the truth of salvation by faith alone always included the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, not as a means of salvation, but as the expression of it. In the life and character of Job, we find a great example of what this work looks like. The theologians sometimes call this work sanctification, which means basically holiness. 
It is so significant in Scripture that we are told to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The basic meaning of sanctification is set apart for holy use. An idea seen, for example, when the Lord said to his covenant people, you shall be holy for I am the Lord, I the Lord am your God, am holy. Uh, Though the word and concept appear at various ways in both Old and New Testament, they deal with what God does in us. It can be seen as a moral growth in goodness and toward goodness. It is a progressive process of moral change by the power of the Holy Spirit in cooperation with the human will. Though this work is something that God, only God can accomplish in us, we are not forced into sanctification any more than we are forced into justification. So, that's a, that's a lot. I wanted to talk to you about this idea. What was the work, the works, that the reformers in the Reformation were protesting. Protestant protestations, the Protestant protestation, that's where Protestant comes from, we're protesters, we're protesting something. What what, what were the works they were protesting? Sale of indulgences. Well, that's an example. Good, indulgences is a good example. Specifically, though, they were protesting what? What were the function of these works? Works to gain salvation. Okay, that uh, we had to behave in certain ways do certain rituals, pay certain payments in order to be good enough to be saved. Such as indulgences, confession, partake of communion, receive last rites, or be buried in the proper sacred ground. Penances. Penances. Make pilgrimages. Give money to the church. Fight in the crusade. Build a cathedral. All of these things were good works that would merit you in some way, establish you good enough to be saved. The idea was you had to do something to put yourself in a position where you were now worthy of salvation. The Reformation was protesting all the works that held salvation hostage to the actions of the sinner and exploited the sinner for the benefit of the institution. Do you understand what that set up? The institution holds the keys to salvation and hell, and it was very much used through history to coerce people to do what the church wanted, or they would condemn you or your loved one to either purgatory or hell. And so you would do anything you could, and they would paint these pictures of your your child who maybe died in of some sickness, which was very common. If you had kids, there really wasn't a family that didn't lose some children uh, to sickness. Okay, an infection. It was just, so all families pretty much had lost kids. And then the church would come along and say, if you don't pay this, if you don't build that, if you don't, uh, if you were rich, if you don't do this, then your child is going to suffer in hell. But if you do this, then, then we will grant you this writ, which will then take your child out of the sufferings of flames of hell and put them in heaven. Is, is it just disgusting? Yeah. So the Reformation was to protest all this. But if you understand today how we think, this idea of the works you had to do to, to be worthy, to get good enough to, to be saved, it would be like saying to a person who was sick, terminally ill, that they must get well before the doctor will treat them. That's what they were basically saying. You must get well before the doctor will treat you. Well, if I was well, I wouldn't need the doctor. That, that's the whole rub. That's what the Protestants, Protestants realize. There's something wrong with this. It's corrupt. It doesn't work. Daniel 7.25 prophesied that a power would arise and seek to change God's law. What power and how? What power? 
Rome. And how did Rome seek to change God's law? Change the day of worship. No. No. <laughs> That's what we're taught. Change it from a natural to an imposed law. The change in the day of worship was an evidence, a mark, a sign of the change in the law, but the change in the day of worship itself was not the change of the law. To replace a man in God's place? What, how do we understand God's law to function? What kind of law is it? Imposed or design? Design. Okay. So, when was the last time a church committee got together and voted to change the law of respiration? Loma Linda has bad smog days. Or I remember about two months ago, maybe a month and a half ago, we had really bad fires around here with the air quality was terrible. Remember? You couldn't already see it. it looked like a fog. Anybody remember this? Just a little short time ago. I had some patients who actually ended up in the hospital on oxygen because their lungs are so bad that it was really messing with them. Wouldn't it have been nice if, if, if we'd got together in church committee and voted when the air quality gets that bad, we, we vote that you don't have to breathe on those days? <laughs> Why don't we ever vote in committee to do that? Because we don't have the power here. Because we can't change those kinds of laws. We can't do it. So what would it mean then if a church committee got together and voted to change God's law? Does it mean they're still seeing it like the laws of gravity or the laws of respiration? Or they're seeing it no different than the laws human beings make that are subject to, to legislative change? So the change in the Sabbath was the evidence or the proof, or the sign, or the mark that the church no longer viewed God in his role as creator, in his laws, the laws upon which reality function, but they now view him in the same role as a Roman dictator who makes up rules and enforces those rules with threats, and therefore, we can change his law. That is the big change. And therefore, you can come back to worship on the Sabbath, but if you still worship a God who arbitrarily declares one day to be over the other day and will punish you if you don't keep the right day, then you still are worshiping the infected distortion, the the change in the law that, that Daniel prophesied about. This is out of Desire of Ages 35. Uh, by the way, this, this, this idea of an imperial law requiring punishment and therefore some, something needs to be done to the God is the root of all paganism. Through heathenism, Satan has for, had for ages turned men away from God, but he won the great triumph in perverting the faith of Israel. By contemplating and worshiping their own conceptions, the heathen had lost a knowledge of God and had become more and more corrupt. So it was with Israel. The principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. It had now become the principle of the Jewish religion. Satan had implanted this principle. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier to sin. You see, in heathenism, they always have to do works. What are the works they have to do, though? They have to offer sacrifices. Peace to God. To do what? What are all the sacrifices designed to do? To influence the God, to pay the God, to, to turn him away, to, so that he will bless them with fertility in the spring, so that he won't be angry. So the works you're doing are designed primarily to influence the God to do something for you. This is appeasement mentality. This corruption of the false law led to all the works and abuses in the Dark Ages that the Protestant Reformation was protesting The most critical is the way we understand the plan of salvation. Protestant theology, however, merely substituted the works of man trying to influence a punishing God with the works of Jesus trying to influence a punishing God. But both of them still have a punishing God that needs to be influenced. 
Yes. So in light of that being the way uh, the pagan, all the pagan religions were, why do you think God would have featured animal sacrifice in as an illustration to his people when it would be so easy to to look that way on those sacrifices as well? Yeah, so what was the purpose of that? To point to the Redeemer to illustrate the plan of salvation. Illustrate who he is. There, there was illustrative, there's no question, the illustrative aspects are definitely built into that. There's no question. There's, there's other, other elements too, though. But that's absolutely true. Share the wages of sin or death. Where does sin happen? In the heart. Hearts. Hearts and minds, that's right. So where is God wanting to make a change? Okay. And so, do we typically sin most of the time on stuff that we really hate doing? I mean, you know what I'm saying, stuff that, that causes us generally at the moment we're doing it to, to, to feel pain and suffering, or is it generally most of the sins that at the time we're doing it, uh, there's some benefit to us? Yeah, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good, most of the time, okay? So, so what is God wanting to achieve in the sinner? Imagine now, remember the culture. You are a shepherd, you birthed many of these. You were there. You named them. You, you care for them. You protect them from the wolf and the lion. And now you've committed a sin. And there's a lesson. You've got to go pick one of those animals. You have to look it in the eye, basically. You have to put your hands on its head. You have to acknowledge why this animal is about to die. Because of something you did. You have to then put a knife to its throat. You have to cut its throat in the blood, the warm blood. It it squeals as you're doing this. Squirts out. Yeah, some of you just in your imagination are getting uncomfortable. And it was designed, I think, not only as an object lesson, but to make you sick. To show you, if you love this little creature... It sickens you to see it die. It tears your heart. You never want to do anything that would cause that again. It's not a payment. It's trying to teach you, like a parent tries to teach a child, that when you sin, you're destroying something even more precious than this little lamb. You're destroying your soul. You're searing your conscience. You're warping your character. You're hardening your heart. You're made in the image of God to be the repository of his very character, his methods, his his way of doing things. The law of love was supposed to operate in you. It's not. And so I think there is to be this gut reaction of revulsion. Unfortunately, because of the corruption and the callousness of the hearts of men, they came to actually think that God liked blood. And therefore, if he liked one blood sacrifice, he would like 10,000 blood sacrifices. So they slaughtered and slaughtered, and rivers of blood were flowing. And you read all through the Old Testament prophets, I hate your sacrifices. They, they make me sick. With what shall I come before the Lord? 10,000 offerings? No. What shall I give my firstborn? My, my child, if he, if he likes animals, and he really liked me to offer my son and kill him. And this is where human sacrifices came from. Because it became corrupt. And God said, I hate these things. What I want is for you to love me, to know me and love me. And so I think one of the primary reasons was to actually teach us this. So the error is still in Protestant theology. 
been this balance between faith and works, justification and sanctification, is the idea that justification is a legal declaration of someone being righteous even though they're not, but God declares that they are if they've said the sinner's prayer and claimed the legal payment of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus is legally, his record of perfect law-keeping is legally applied to your record in heaven. So when the Father examines your legal record in the judgment, he sees the perfect record of Jesus and he declares that you've had a perfect life even though you haven't. And you're declared to be perfect even though you're not. And that's justification. You're, set, you're justified in a legal sense. And then sanctification is what comes after that, that you get the Holy Spirit that begins healing and restoring. True biblical justification, though, isn't this convoluted legal stuff that doesn't seem to make sense in how reality works. It's very simple. Justification is setting someone right. When you justify the margins on your Word document, you set what's out of harmony right. Okay? And so justification is taking a heart that distrusts God. Our natural heart, according to Romans, is enmity to God. It doesn't trust him. It fears him. It's alienated from him. And changing that heart from a state of distrust to a state of true trust. And that's why it says about Abraham, Abraham trusted God and was then recognized as righteous. Why? Because his heart condition, the natural state of enmity and distrust, had been set right again, where his heart now trusts God. It's a condition of being. And then after he trusts God, when we trust him, what do we do? We open ourselves to him. We open ourselves to him, then the spirit is poured in, and all the transformation comes, but it only comes when the heart has been changed from distrust to trust. Yes. And it can happen briefly in a short period of time. Absolutely. Because look at the thief of the cross. He was actually, the Bible says, both of them were ridiculing Christ to begin with. So he went from ridiculing in just a few hours to turning to God in trust. In genuine trust. And being open to salvation through him. And Christ said, you will be saved. And that's a heart condition change, a condition of the heart. It's a real change in the person, and there's nothing legal going on in courtrooms about this. That whole thing is a corruption of the false law construct. So what's the balance then between faith and works? James 2, 20 to 22, you foolish man. You, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Or Philippians 2, 12 and, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, you have always obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Who's doing the sowing here? Hmm. Colossians 3, 1 through 13. Since you, then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts. Who's doing the setting? 
set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, put to death. What's the implied, who's the implied um, subject here? Yes, it's you put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as all these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Who's doing the work? Is salvation dependent on any work that we do? This Bible passages have all been a source of tension within Christianity. There's two primary camps. One, the, the work you, um, the work your way to heaven camp, uh, which our works commend us to God or somehow save us from sin, legalism, opposed by the camp which says our salvation is God's grace without our works and our works only reveal what God has done in us. This tension only exists, though, because they're both operating on the false law construct. Go back to design law, and all the tensions evaporate. See if, without me explaining it further, see if these quotes from Ellen White make the design law harmonize for you, if you think through design law. This is Lift Him Up, page 193. While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and do according to his good pleasure... They were working out their own salvation. Herein is revealed the outworking of the divine principle of cooperation, without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power, and without human endeavor, divine effort is with many no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. His grace is given to work in us to will and to do, but never a substitute for our effort. Interesting. How about this one? Uh, Two mind character personality, 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Man is to work with the facilities God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or... Our high calling, page 310. There are two grand forces in the work of salvation of the human soul. Two grand forces. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is, this, it is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. You know what the word credulity means? Faith or belief. He doesn't sanction a blind, stupid, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't make any sense, I don't ask any questions, uh, you know, it, it, I just believe. No, he doesn't sanction that. He does not 
dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. And then the last one, Desire of Ages 466. In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion. No external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. The expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control, but when we desire to be set free from sin and in our great need cry out for a power out of and above ourselves, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. So what is the truth between faith and works? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the Bible says, he, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. So I see, you know, when you use a yoke on animals, there's the, they usually use a, a wiser, older animal, and they would yoke up a less wise and old animal to learn how to do what they're doing. And so Jesus invites us, I think, to come into that kind of a bonded relationship where we can learn from him how you respond the yoke is the yoke is a good example because the yoke is not a bridle it's not a bit the yoke is a device that shares the work between the two okay so it it brings two into harmony where they work together the cooperative effort so that's exactly right he didn't say take my bridle upon you or my bit upon you or my spurs upon you or my whip upon you it was the yoke and the yoke is the yoke of love it is love that yokes us together with Christ. That's what it is. So it's very well said. Russell. I like this idea that there's a, a divine law of cooperation. We've talked about law of exertion. We've talked about all the other design laws. Uh, <clears throat> it's a good one. It, it kind of makes me think back to the last quarter's lesson with quantum entanglement. We partakers of the divine nature. It gives us a little, maybe some insights, the mechanics of it. So as we go through this... We have to understand what is, one of the principles I was taught in medicine is diagnosis first. Because if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is usually wrong. So what is the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? A problem in God? A problem in God's law? No, it was a problem in the condition of the human being itself. Thus, Christ doesn't need to do anything to God or do anything to God's law. He actually needs to do something about the condition of humanity. Thus, when we move back to the truth about God's design law and how he really built things to work, we realize that sin changed humankind to be out of harmony with his design and thereby dead in trespass and sin. In other words, we have a terminal condition. And then we realize the true balance between faith and works. So here's the, as I see it. Christ, singly and alone, with no help from any human source, defeated Satan, revealed the truth about God, exposed Satan as a liar, destroyed the infection of selfishness, and developed a perfect human character, the remedy for sin. Thus, no work that we can do can create our own remedy or add to the healing power or perfection of the remedy Christ has achieved. 
in the humanity of Jesus Christ, in his humanity that he assumed, the species known as human was saved. See, as long as we have one panda, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus Christ, the species human will always exist. Always. So he saved the species in himself. And he achieved a remedy that will heal all who partake of it if they trust him. So, yet we now must partake. This is the work that we have to do. Without partaking of the remedy that Christ provides, we simply fail to be transformed, not because God can't transform us, but but we aren't participating with him to be transformed. The work we do does not change or influence God in any way, but connects us with God and his remedy that heals and transforms us. It would be like having an infection, and there's an antibiotic that will cure you. You didn't develop the antibiotic. You didn't pay for the antibiotic. It's freely offered to you. But you still must Take it. Okay? It won't be forced down your throat. There's no compulsion we read. And when you take of it, it does something in you that you can't do for yourself. This is what James is saying, that faith without works is dead. It would be faith without works would be believing that the antibiotic has power to help you, but refusing to take it. I believe that antibiotic works, but I won't take it. That's faith without works, and your condition remains Terminal. This is Christians who claim the legal payment of Christ, but won't actually partake of Christ in their life for the transformation of their characters. They remain dead. Faith without works is dead. Tim. Yes. One time, long, long ago, I was uh, doing some work literature and I came across this lady that said when I was telling her about what I was doing and would she accept this she said that's not in our jurisdiction so in other words she was saying that unless my priest or my pastor hands me this information I can't take it from you that actually comes out in other men that same idea She was very overt, and you look at that and go, oh, how horrible. You see that same idea. What's the idea? That I've surrendered to some other authority the ability to determine for me what information I will utilize and not utilize. So how does it come out in other ways? We only read the King James Bible. Only the King James Bible is one we'll read. We won't read any other version. It's the authorized version. Authorized by who? By King James not by God. Okay, but that's the same idea. I, I can't take it. You, you didn't quote it in King James. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's not in the red leather books. If, if there's not an Ellen White quote to support what you're saying, then I can't believe it. Can't believe it unless she wrote it. But, but we take the Bible over, over Ellen White. But if we can't find Ellen White's writings, we still won't believe it. My pastor, my church. Well, if it's not in the 27, 28 fundamentals, if the church, uh, uh, the Biblical Research Institute hasn't authorized it, if we, if we can't find the Biblical Research Institute saying it's okay to believe that, we can't believe it. You see the same thing happening. People are afraid to actually use their God-given reasoning powers to weigh the evidences through the three threads, the divine sources, scripture, science and nature, and experience, 
harmonizing them to come to an intelligent conclusion about how God actually works. They're afraid. And we have the earth to be able to talk with God and help him to bring truth and clarity to the to what you're studying. And so And this is one of the reasons why I think the the latter rain hasn't really been poured out in great power, is because I don't believe God is going to give his spirit to empower people to go out and lie about him. To take this wrong dictator view of God. Yes. Do you think that God would have allowed the Bible to be translated and not be all truth? I mean, when I think of the King James Version, I feel like that was the one that was translated originally. There was the Tyndale Bible before that one. Okay, the Tyndale Bible, whatever. But do, do you believe that there is a Bible that has been translated from the original script? Without errors? Yes. No. The King James has cl- multiple errors in it. Multiple. Okay, then why would God allow his word? I have a quote for you. Hold you're on. not saved by the details of the... You're saved by a person. <coughs> you can learn of God. Then why even call it his word? God I'm not the Holy Spirit for us. The Holy Spirit I understand that. So why even have... This is out of... Um, YRP, page 217. It says, The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. But see, I have a friend... That it's imperfect. The Bible because they, they say, how do we know that's God's word? How do we know when it was translated, it wasn't translated according to the people that were doing it? So that, how do we know the Sabbath is a Sabbath? See, that, see you just mixed to completely different questions. Okay, completely different questions. Where would we get the Ten Commandments from if we didn't get it from the Bible? Okay, so this is the question. When... Peter wouldn't associate with certain individuals. In, let's say he came to your church, and he's the apostle, and he's not going to associate with uncircumcised fellows. Do you say, well, Peter's an apostle, who am I? Or, or was Peter wrong, and he needed to be corrected? Was he wrong, and he needed to be corrected? Yes, he was wrong. Did that undermine his apostleship? Or is he still an apostle? It did not negate, but it shows his humanness. But this is the point. Every person who wrote the Bible is a sinner who has their own human understanding of things. I'll give you an example. Um... Paul wrote and expected that Jesus was going to return very shortly, within the lifetime of, and and the new Christian church was very distraught that people were already starting to die, and Christ hadn't returned yet. They expected his second coming within a few years, and Paul wrote things that it's very short, the time is very short. Was he right? Was the time very short? No, so you just just tell me, then there's there's not a word that we can believe. Now, I didn't say that at all. It depends on how you understand the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to man, to reveal his character, his methods. It is not a code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. It's not what it is. It is to reveal God's nature, his character, the reality, to elevate people who are degraded into a paganistic way of thinking, which is a dictatorial God who gives you a code book, a list of things, do these, check them off, don't think, don't ask questions, to elevate man back up into the image of God, who we come and reason together with him, who understand how reality works, and thus the Bible is filled with truth, un- un- unimaginable deep truths that we haven't even plumbed the depths of yet. It's inspired, there's no question. God inspired his penmen, and he did not give dictation. 
In other words, God wasn't dictating and they were, they were writing what God said. He gave them insight and wisdom into themes and concepts. The penmen chose the words and the ways of expressing it and the analogies and examples that they, they used. God didn't choose those words. And therefore... I think what she's asking though is how do you know that? And for instance, that's why there's no value in any specific word. There's value in the theme or the concept being expressed there. It's the truth, not the word. So, if it was only the word, the specific words chosen, then we would have to learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Because, Are those trustworthy? Because if we didn't, if, if it was valuing the word, we couldn't replace those Hebrew and Greek words with English words. Or else we would corrupt it. But we can replace those with, as long as we're true to the meaning. That's how translation works. And that's how inspiration works. It's the meaning derived. And there, I don't have the quote on me right now, but Ellen White actually says explicitly that the, in, the, in, the, um, in the scripture, um, it is not the words. It's the meaning there. And that, the, uh, that inspiration works through God who's divine, through imperfect penmen who chose the words to write. She says this very thing. Isn't that why he spoke in parables? He spoke in parables because people were at seven different levels of moral development, and he was wanting to give information at a, a, a level one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And in, in their own in their own level, all of them could take those parables and get some truth out of them. Yeah. Multiple threads of evidence. At multiple threads. Yeah, that's you right. Look at nature, and you observe nature the way Darwin observed it. He was not incorrect in his well, observations. He was incorrect in his conclusions. He saw the the disease of nature, and he concluded that. Mm, this is how things have been since the beginning. And this is the problem with Scripture by itself. Exactly. Scripture by itself, disconnected from its mooring anchors in nature and science and our own real experiences, becomes convoluted, and people interpret 10 different ways the same passage, and you have 34,000 currently different Christian groups all argumenting that the Bible means what they say it means. And the way you avoid that confusion is by requiring your interpretations of Scripture to harmonize with reality. Your own life experiences, how reality works. And, for instance, you can never get someone to love you by threatening to kill them if they don't. That's a law of liberty. It violates the whole principles of freedom. And thus, when you understand that, you understand that God is never saying, love me or I'll kill you. And so when you see uh, God using power and might in Old Testament times, you have to understand there's some other issue going on. Now, do people who love ever use power and might on other people that they love? Yes, they do. But it's never to get them to love them. It's always to, for some reason, there's a situation that they're, they're using it to protect in some way, to heal. Whether it's a child who has to be held down so they can pull a thorn out of his foot and the child is screaming, don't, 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 or, or a surgery on an on a, on a appendicitis in a child and, and so forth and so on. I mean, you may be doing things that look violent to the uneducated, but they're always designed to heal and restore when you understand it in this light. So this is out of Six Bible Commentary 1074, Ellen White writing, the atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. Really profound. This is what we're saying. This is design law stuff. Thus, when we are one to trust, we open the heart, surrender our will to him, the spirit infuses us, we become partakers of the divine nature, and thus we are transformed over time, living a holier and healthier life. The lesson also says this, though, and it was quite profound to me, and see what you think about this, and I couldn't let it pass since our next quarter is on the Holy Spirit. It said this, Yet the truth of salvation by faith alone 
always included the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, not as a means of salvation, but as an expression of it. You know, they're saying here that we are saved first by our confession and claims of the blood of Jesus to our legal penalty, and then after we're saved, we get the Holy Spirit as an evidence that we were already saved. That's what they're saying. You know, what you call saved is if it's heart transformation versus if it's simply a statement. This is, so, so you're pointing out this is a false distinction that they're making based on a false law construct of salvation being a legal process. I'm going to tell you there is no salvation for an individual soul without the Holy Spirit. None. Zero. The Holy Spirit is the delivery agency that delivers the remedy that Christ achieved in your heart and mind. Without the remedy Christ achieved singly and alone by himself, we cannot be saved, but we can't partake the remedy without the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us and making that effectual in our lives. So Acts of the Apostles, page 52, the Spirit is, giving, is given as a regenerating agency to make effectual the salvation wrought out by the death of our Redeemer. Or, three selected messages, 137. Of what avail would it have been to us that the only begotten Son of God humbled himself, endured the temptations of the wily foe, and wrestled with him during his entire life on earth, and died for the just, the just for the unjust, that humanity might not perish, if... The Spirit had not been given as a constant working, regenerating agent to make effectual in our cases what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. What's the implication of the question? Of what avail would it have been? Is she saying that we couldn't be saved without the Holy Spirit? Am I reading too much into that? Am I reasoning too much, drawing too much of a conclusion? Could we say that without the Holy Spirit, that the work of Christ would have been of no avail to us? Am I going too far? Well, if you need an Ellen White quote, <laughs> the desire of age is 671. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure, through the Spirit that the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. In this battle between Christ and Satan, I want you to think now, Satan has been working to oppose the redemption of mankind ever since Adam's fall. He first worked to deceive Adam and Eve, and then he began working immediately to oppose the work of salvation by getting, seeking to harden all hearts of men so there would be no human being that would be the mother of Christ and, and close the avenue through, through which Messiah would come. We see God acting there at the time of Noah when there's only one righteous man left on the earth to keep open the avenue through which Messiah would come. We see him working to try and get the, the corrupt penal legal view of God into the Israel so they would have this penal legal God that you have to appease instead of the, and, and not be prepared to meet Jesus and thus when the Messiah came, 
Satan tried to have baby Jesus killed in order to obstruct Jesus from completing his mission, but Jesus completed his mission. And so now Satan works because there's another way. He can't keep, he can't keep Jesus from saving the species because Jesus did that in his own person. But he's trying to keep as many of us from participating in the victory. And how does he do that? Because even though the remedy is achieved by Christ, we still must partake. It's like there's penicillin available for all of us who got an infection, but he's trying to get everyone to believe that you don't have to take it. And so one way to do that is the delivery mechanism. The delivery mechanism. And the delivery mechanism is the Holy Spirit. And so let's undermine the role and the agency of the Holy Spirit. Let's teach that there is no Trinity. Let's teach there is no Holy Spirit. Let's teach that the Spirit is just uh, something that the Catholic Church made up. Let's not believe in a Holy Spirit. Let's not look for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Let's think the Holy Spirit, and what we see in some of the Christian churches where the Spirit is moving, is it's not the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's downplay it. Well, let's call it the Spirit of Devils. Let's call it the Spirit of Devils. It's another strategy. Sunday's lesson. Now we're at Sunday. Backtracking. <laughs> First paragraph says, though Job had been uh, told all his life, me, though Job had been told all through the dialogues that he must have done something wrong in order for all this evil to come upon him, the opposite appears to be the case. It was his goodness, his faithfulness that made him the special target of Satan. And the lessons for that today. Is it true that sometimes, and I emphasize the word sometimes, that we may experience difficulties because we are actually right with God, not because we're walking away from him. Yeah, this is one explanation why trials and difficulty come. Not the only, but it is one. I want to point out, though, how can this, then that can be an encouragement to us if we're going through difficult times. It might be if we look and, and honest and, and ask the Holy Spirit to show if there's any problems that we need to fix, but it might be that it's because we are, try, are doing a good work that the devil's trying to discourage us. But how can this idea be misused? This idea. Now, I'll tell you. Some believe if they are not being persecuted by the world, they are not yet holy enough. And thus they use persecution as the evidence of their holiness. So they continue to make a point of acting in ways that enhance their divergence and antagonism to societal norms so they can draw persecution to themselves and prove their holiness. The Branch Davidians had this type of thinking. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Their, their being surrounded played into David Koresh's end-time thing, that the nation of America would persecute the saints and come in, and, and this was evidence, and it only solidified them in their delusional state that the Lord was about to deliver them. Second paragraph says, how good and how faithful was he? First, the text tells us that he was perfect. This word does not have... Uh, does not have to mean sinless, as, as was Jesus. It comes instead from the idea of completeness, integrity, sin, sincerity, uh, but is a, a re- in a relative sense. The person who is perfect in the sight of God is a person who has reached a degree of development that heaven expects of him or her at any given time. The Hebrew word for perfect, tam, is equivalent to the Greek word teleos, uh, which is often translated perfect in the New Testament, but which is better translated full-grown or mature. This is exactly right. This is... Um, Again, notice, commending the quarterly. This is exactly right. This is exactly what that means. Perfect in the Bible. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye therefore mature in what? In love. That's why it says love, you know, love love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those who are mature in love are perfect as their Father in heaven. It's not about 
perfect in behavior. So a Bible perfect person can still spill soup on their shirt, trip over a tree root, get math problems wrong, make an error in their check registry and bounce a check, and they're still perfect. But they won't write purposely fraudulent checks. Big difference. Okay. And so with that in mind, remember the passage I've emphasized several times, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. And though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Notice, once made perfect, not once made sinless, he was always sinless, once matured, once he developed a perfect, sinless human character, then he became the source because that is what we need. Remember Desire of Ages 761? The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This we, man is not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Okay? So this is what, this is what Bible perfection means. And Jesus once made perfect. Once he achieved the victory. So third paragraph, and I'm kind of moving fast. We only have a couple of minutes and a couple of thoughts I wanted to get to. Second, uh, the text say, says he was not bright. This word means straight. Level, just, right. Job lived in a way that he could be called a good citizen. Um, and I'll just leave it for you because we won't go into this because we spent a whole hour on this. But I want you to think about what is the way, way we balance obeying God's law and human law. How do we be a good citizen without disobeying God's law? Is there ever time that's intention? Fourth paragraph. In fact, I'm going to skip the fourth. I'm going to go to the fifth. Um, Fifth paragraph. It says, finally, Job eschewed or shunned evil. This characterization of Job was affirmed by the Lord himself. Eschewed or shunned evil. How can we tell the difference between good and evil? If we're in the imposed law construct, the imposed law, we often miss the difference between good and evil, and we often end up doing evil in the name of good. How do we do evil in the name of good under the imposed law? Well, we crucify Christ for breaking the Sabbath law. We burn people at the stake for not keeping the rules that we think throughout history. Or a mother is home with her five- and seven-year-old daughters decorating the Christmas tree and having Christmas music playing, and they're giggling and laughing and dancing and frolicking as they're having fun, and the father walks in and sees them dancing and scowls angrily and comments about how dancing is of the devil and is sinful and and stomps out. I don't make these things up. A preacher tells his church that Christ cannot return until women stop wearing makeup, jewelry, and pants, and until Christians stop watching TV and stop eating meat. And until you stop doing all that, Jesus can't come back. It's all your fault. It's all your fault, you wicked, wicked people. When you're under the imposed rules, you, you lose the ability to tell the difference between evil and non-evil, and you do evil in the name of good. And this is what's happened. And so I could give you more stories, but I won't. Um, I'm going to skip a quote here. You have to get it out of the lesson. You learn to discern good from evil by practice. Yes, that's right. Exactly. So in closing, we're going to jump to Tuesday. That's right. The Hebrews 5.14, the mature of those who developed um, by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong by practice. So Tuesday's lesson, last paragraph, states, Here, though, Job shows just how much he understands about human rights and that these rights originate in the God who made us. What are human rights? What does human rights mean? 
Well, I, I looked this up. I got a definition off the internet. Here's a definition of human rights. They are commonly understood as inalienable fundamental rights to which a person is inherently entitled simply because he or she is a human being and which are inherent in all human beings, regardless of their nation, location, language, religion, ethnic origin, or any other status. They are applicable everywhere and at all times in the sense of being universal, and they are egalitarian in the sense of being the same for everyone. They require empathy and the rule of law and impose an obligation on persons to respect the human rights of others. They should not be taken away except as a result of due process based on specific circumstances. So, that's a pretty reasonable definition if you ask me. But name any? Well, our Constitution. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Freedom of thought is an inalienable right. That we don't coerce people. That we leave us. That's why we have the, the separation of church and state. Because it's an inalienable right. That you have the, uh, the right to worship according to your conscience. And you should not be coerced to worship in a different way. Freedom from torture. Freedom from imprisonment. Again, others, other than you've forfeited that right for certain reasons. Uh, freedom from slavery is an inalienable right. It's interesting we have these inalienable rights, life, liberty, but we had slavery with our founding fathers. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Okay. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, freedom of speech. And in these freedoms, many Americans misunderstand these freedoms. Freedom of speech is really freedom of speech of conscience. It's not the freedom to speak anything you want at any time in any place under any circumstance, there are actually restrictions on your freedom of speech under the Constitution. It is, for instance, if you get on an airplane and, and yelled bomb or something on an airplane, you will have to answer for that. Okay? Uh, speech that is designed to inflict harm and mass hysteria, you're not free to do. It's about freedom in a political sense, in a, in a religious sense, to have your political, uh, to be able to speak basically against the crown. To be say, hey, we don't like what King George is doing. We think there's a better way. We're protesting this taxation and so forth. It was freedom to speak your political and religious views, not freedom to speak any ugly thing about any person in any circumstance. That's why that you can have a libel suit or a slander suit, whichever way it goes. Um, Freedom of movement, freedom of a fair trial. And, 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 and this also was included on the website, right to bear arms. Right, which is, I guess, the, the right to defend oneself. These two arms. <laughs> These two arms right here, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to point out, though, you know, I've often pointed out that in Christianity there's a contradiction Inher- that, that most Christians ignore. God is love, but if you don't love him, he'll use his power to kill you. It's an inherent contradiction that doesn't work. Unless we have to rework that whole end of sin and sinners things, which we've done, and show that God is not the source of inflicted pain and suffering and death. But in the humanistic evolutionary worldview, there's an inherent contradiction as well. And here's the inherent contradiction. The humanistic evolutionary worldview states that the way you and I got here today was millions of years of evolution driven by the principle of survival of the fittest, which means the strong prey on the weak and destroy the weak from amongst their genetic gene pool because we don't want those genes repopulating, and we kill them off so that we can become stronger and evolve, but at the same time, all humans have equal rights, and we must protect the weak, and we must not kill them and knock them off. This is a humanistic worldview. It's contradictory. If we were actually true, we should actually, if we were actually operating on the humanistic evolutionary worldview, we should be killing everybody that has a mental, major mental defect, anybody who, is re, who can't fend for themselves, all the people living in nursing homes. And so, this is what Adolf Hitler did. So how their economy went like that overnight. He went and, and wiped out all the defects that were sucking resources away from the community that were, were being cared for by others. He, he just killed them all. 
This is the evolutionary worldview. And, and if there is no, so the point is, as soon as they start arguing for human rights, they're inherently acknowledging a higher power. Because there is no, because if you actually look at what evil is, go in any society in the world, even a humanistic world, and ask the evolutionary biologist, can you tell me what evil is, or describe evil, or, or, or give me examples of evil? Evil always, in every society of the world, is the exploitation of another human being. That's what it always is. Child molestation, or uh, uh, human trafficking, slavery, uh, something, lying. Uh, it's always the exploitation of another human being. And, and why, what does that mean? They are acknowledging that humans have inherent rights. And where does that moral standard derive? Not from an evolutionary worldview. We're nothing but amoebas that, you know, over millions of years became something more, and we're on our way to something else. And we could certainly accelerate that evolutionary process if we stopped protecting all these weak ones in our society and just killed them. Okay, I, that was not my view, by the way. Don't, don't even take that little clip and say, look what Jennings is teaching. No, that is the... <laughs> okay? No, that, that's the inherent logical... That's the place you go if you actually believe that nonsense. So the Christian worldview that God is a God of love is, is, is actually being practiced in many of these humanists as they seek to protect the rights of others. And it's very interesting, you look at these contradictions and how the devil's got both sides working against each other. Because who is it that is more likely to want to do away with the death penalty? The humanists or the Christians? Christians. Do away with the death penalty. The humanists. Who is it that's more interested in protecting the environment, which we are to be caretakers of this earth, the humanists or the Christians? Isn't this interesting? Okay, you, you find this all down the line, these contradictions. Okay? Because the Christians have bought into the imperial God construct, which makes it right for us to inflict punishment and kill the wicked, because that's what God will do. The humanists, having rejected that, recognize that there's inherent human rights, but they deny the God that actually is the basis for those inherent human rights. Yes? I have a question about the evolutionary theory, and it relates to Christianity and religious thought. The last sentence of that paragraph that you're reading says... Job was ahead of not only his time, but ours as well. Are we on an evolutionary get better and better and better? Okay. So how I understand evolution, and when you talk about evolution, I really hate the word because there is origins and there is change over time. Evolution, when you talk about origins, the science does not support. There's no evidence to support the origins in fact, all the science contradicts evolutionary origins. It all supports creation origins. However, science does confirm that things evolve and change over time. There's no question that that happens. Okay? I call, I prefer the word adaptation. We adapt and change based on life experiences. Epigenetically, and we have lots of lessons on this. The Bible teaches this to be true. Adam will make, and Eve will make children in their image. As they change, they will have children that are more like them. This is change happening through life experience. In this way, evolution happens. But if we talk about evolution from species to species changing, there's no scientific evidence that happens either. None. Within the species, there's change. And then what the science actually shows, that biologically... We are genetically degrading over time. There is every generation has a minimum of a thousand more mutations in the DNA than the generation before had. So we're slowly degrading in our biology. But 
we may be evolving in our comprehension and understanding of reality. I think science will show we clearly understand science more today than probably any time in human history, and we are supposed to understand God's reality more at the end time than any other in his history. Um, well, you know, I don't know that we know it better than Adam, because Adam had, uh, you know, some very, um, he had a good teacher there in the Eden that, that, to teach him things, and, and yes, and he had abilities we don't have, but, but any time since the flood, I would say, that we have, we've been, we've been advancing, particularly in the last, uh, you know, several hundred years, clearly from where humanity was in the dark ages to where it is today, we are evolving in our comprehension and understanding. Um, but we are not evolving as a, a total package entity. We are degrading physiologically. So that's, that's how I would explain that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your kingdom of love and the way you've designed things and your design of love and truth and freedom. We ask that your spirit be poured out. Take what Christ has achieved singly and alone and apply it through your spirit into our hearts and minds that we may become partakers of the divine nature and make us effective in sharing this message in our community in the most winsome way possible. We pray in your holy name. Amen.